You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. These last three or four weeks, I have enjoyed church probably more than I have in 20 years as a Christian. Uh, These last weeks, I've sensed a spirit of praise and adoration for the Lord and this people that I don't know that I've ever sensed before. I hope that you sense it as well. I hope that it's not just me, but... uh, I'm glad that it's at least me. (laughs) I don't believe that it is, though, because I hear it from many of you who are saying those kinds of things, and I'm thankful for that. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. Again, we're back in the Gospel of John. We took a break for a few weeks, but we're back there. I want to read you one verse of Scripture. John chapter 8, verse 12. And again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. A story is told of King Charles XII when he was the king of Sweden. As was his wont to do periodically, he would show up in various churches across the land. He was a godly king. He made a decision to appear on a particular Sunday morning in a fairly small chapel in a small village in Sweden. He did not come announced until just about an hour before he was to arrive. And when the local pastor heard that the king was going to be visiting in the worship service that morning, he scrapped the message that he had planned for preaching that morning and spent the entire hour of worship extolling the the virtues of that particular king of Sweden. About a month later, the church received a cross sent from the king of Sweden and with it a note that said this, Place this cross on the pole across from the pulpit so that whoever stands there will always be reminded of what his proper subject should be. John the Apostle never needs to be reminded of what his proper subject is. It is Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of John's gospel to the end of John's gospel, John has one focus. He has one point, and that is that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. This Jesus whom we worship, this Jesus whom we know, this Jesus who died and was raised again was none other than God in the flesh. And John's focus from beginning to end is focusing upon the deity of Jesus Christ. He begins his gospel with these words, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, he tells us who the Word was. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled, and that's an important word in light of this message today. He came and he tabernacled, or he came and he built a tent. He dwelt in our midst. So John, the apostle, focuses on the right subject. 
he focuses on the king of kings, not an earthly king. And one of the ways that John does that is by recording words that have come to be known by Bible students as the I am statements of Jesus. I'm certain that you are familiar with at least some of those statements that Jesus makes. He would begin them. There are six or seven of them in the Gospel of John. And he would begin by saying, I am, and then he would add something to that. For instance, in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 10, verse 9, he said, I am the door. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. In verse chapter 14 of John's gospel, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. All of the I am statements that Jesus makes that John records for us in his gospel as he focuses upon the deity and the divinity of Christ, all of the I, I am statements are about Jesus' deity. They are pointing to Jesus as the great I am. As a matter of fact, before the 8th chapter closes, Jesus is going to take that Old Testament name of God that he gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses said, Lord, suppose I go to the Pharaoh, and he says, who sent you? God responded, Jehovah God responded and said, tell them I am has sent you. I am who I am. Moses said, what's your name? God said, I am. In the end of this chapter, Jesus is going to take that very holy, reverent name of God that the Jews revered so much that they would not even pronounce it, and he applies that to himself, and the Jews take up stones to throw him. Jesus says, before your father Abraham was, I am. All of the I am statements focus upon the deity of Christ. As a matter of fact, it was the I am statements that Jesus made that accelerated the hatred of the Pharisees against him. When Jesus was healing the sick, they didn't like it a whole lot, but they couldn't do a whole lot about it. When Jesus was teaching his disciples about the kingdom that was in their midst, they didn't like it a whole lot, but there wasn't a whole lot they could do about it, and it certainly was not grounds for stoning him. But when Jesus said, I am that I am, John records for us in the end of this chapter that they took up stones and they were about to stone him because they understood what he was saying. They understood that he was saying that he was none other than God in the flesh. In the next few weeks, I want to take a few verses, just a couple of verses, out of the 8th chapter of John's Gospel and focus upon them. Two of the statements that I'm going to focus on are I am statements. Statements that Jesus made, he said, I am, and then he added something to them. One of the other statements is not an I am statement, but fits right in line with them. And then perhaps the fourth week, I'm going to come back and explain to you from the 8th chapter of John why the Pharisees did not receive the truth that Jesus came to bring. Now, in this heat this morning, if you can stay awake, you're a good man, okay? So loosen your tie or you're a good woman. Loosen your tie. Get comfortable because before it's over with, I'll probably take my coat off anyway. Get comfortable. Fan yourself. Pinch your husband or wife or your kids next to you. Whatever you have to do to stay awake because I believe the Lord has something significant that he wants to say to you this morning. This morning, I want to focus on the I am statement that Jesus made in the very opening verse of John's gospel where he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. Now, what is Jesus saying? What does Jesus mean when he says, I am 
the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. As I have already indicated to you, Jesus is making a statement, first of all, about his identity. He is making a statement about his identity. He is telling these listeners who he is. Granted, he is doing it in somewhat veiled terms at this point, but before the chapter is over, he's going to raise the veil back and he's just going to state it and he's going to take the name of God and he's going to say, that's who I am. But here in this verse of scripture, he is giving them a, a picture of his identity, but he is doing it in somewhat veiled terms. Now, I've got to give you the historical setting for this statement for you to understand the impact of Jesus' words. So stay with me for a moment while I give you the history. Jesus at this time is in Jerusalem. Jesus has gone to Jerusalem as any good Jew would for one of the great feasts of the Jews. There were three major feasts, annual feasts that the Jews had. They had others, but there were three that were major feasts and that good Jews would make the pilgrimage. Those within a 20-mile radius, as it were, of Jerusalem were required to go to the feast, and those outside of that radius would make the trek, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, if at all possible, for these three great feasts. The first one was the Feast of Passover. It is the one that we are the most familiar with. The second feast was the Feast of the Harvest. And the third feast was the Feast of Tabernacles, or tents. It was this feast that was going on in Jerusalem, the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jesus was there in Jerusalem at this time. As a good Jew, he had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was all about the wilderness wanderings. It was all about the history of the Jews when they had wandered in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses for those 40 years. During the Feast of Tabernacles, they went back and they commemorated, they remembered that 40-year experience in the wilderness wanderings. During that period of time, they had dwelt in tents. So, during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was an eight-day feast, during this Feast of Tabernacles, they constructed temporary housing. Government housing, I suppose, if you will. Temporary stuff. It was going to come down after eight days. They would erect tents, and they called them tabernacles, and they would live in those tabernacles for this eight-day period of the feast. Now, all along with this of remembering and celebrating that 40-year wilderness wanderings, during the Feast of Tabernacles, as they were dwelling in tents, as they were dwelling in these tabernacles, they would go back and they would commemorate the three great miraculous provisions that God the Father had given to his people during that time of wandering in the wilderness. And it is interesting to me that Jesus, in the Gospel of John, identified himself with all three of those miraculous provisions that God had given to his people in the wilderness wanderings. Let me give them to you. The first miraculous provision was that God had provided for them manna in the wilderness. Remember, manna was a bread-like kind of substance. Jesus, turn back over if you want to real quick to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 48 through 51, Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. He says, you had manna in the wilderness? Listen to this. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died, not from eating the manna, but it just means that they were mortal. They never did become immortal, okay? They ate it in the wilderness, and they died. 
He said, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and never die. So in the Feast of Tabernacles, they commemorated the giving of the manna in the wilderness. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. They ate that manna and they still died. But if you come and you eat of me, if you eat of this bread, you will never die. The second great provision that God made for his people was water from the rock. Remember, they were wandering in a desert wilderness. There was not just a great deal of water, particularly to provide for as many people as were in the Exodus wanderings. And so through Moses, from the rock, God provided water that would literally gush out for their water needs in the wilderness. In John chapter 7, verses 37 to 38, it says on the last day, it says on the great day of the feast, this feast of tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. So Jesus is saying, God provided man in the wilderness. I am the bread of life. Jesus is saying, God provided water from the rock in the wilderness, but he who comes to me and drinks of me will spring up within him a well unto eternal life. And then the third great provision that God the Father provided for his people in the wilderness was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that was there during the daytime to protect them from the sun and to guide them the pillar of fire was there by nighttime to light their path and to guide them as they walked through the wilderness wandering so they could travel during the day or they could travel during the night so the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud by day and by night were there to guide them jesus says i am the light of the world do you get the sequence now there's bread, I'm the bread of life. There's manna, I'm the bread of life. There's water, I'm the water of life. He who comes to me and drinks, it will well up within him like a river of rushing water. They, uh, God provided light for them in the wilderness. And now Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, that light was given to guide them, but was something more than that. Very much more than that, and it's important that you understand it. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, says that God the Father traveled with them in the cloud and in the fire. Now, what does that mean? If God was in the cloud and if he was in the fire, then the cloud and the fire became symbols of God's presence dwelling within the midst of the people. Now, during the feast, part of the feast festivities or the activities was to go back and commemorate the giving of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. This is how they did it. In the treasury, which was in the court of the women, there were four giant candelabras. Now, when I say candelabra, you have in mind the thing that is sitting on your dining room table or on your mantle over your fireplace. But that's not the kind of candelabra this was. These were monstrous. These were, let's put it in Saddam Hussein's terms, this was the mother of all candelabras. I mean, these were major candelabras. Not only was there one of them, but there were four of them. There in the court of the women in the treasury. And by the way, verse 20 of John 8 tells us that Jesus spoke these words in the treasury. So as they were lighting these candles or as they were putting them out, Jesus was making this statement, I am the light of the world. The Mishnah, the Jewish oral tradition tells us, now this is, this is pretty wild, that young boys would be the ones who went up and put the oil in the candelabras. That's because they were the only ones stupid enough to do it. Because it said they had to climb a ladder that was 50 cubits high. Now, you remember Noah's Ark. 
building so many cubits by so many cubits. You know how much a cubit is? A cubit is basically 18 inches, distance from elbow to fingertip, okay? So 50 cubits high, some of you mathematicians figured that one out, but that's pretty high. That's a candelabra that's some 60 or 70, almost 80 feet in height, standing in the court of the women in the treasury there, and the Mishnah also said that these candelabra were so bright that when all four of them were lit, that there was not a courtyard in all of Jerusalem that did not have the light from these candelabras shedding into the courtyard. You see, that was the purpose of it. Because in the Old Testament wanderings, when the pillar of fire was shining at night, it literally shined a light over all of the people, over a million of them. Well, they commemorated that with these massive candelabras in the court of the women. And they wanted it to shine over all of Jerusalem, just like the pillar of fire had shined over all of the people in the wilderness wanderings. And so John says that Jesus is standing in the treasury and he makes this statement as the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night represented and symbolized the very presence of God. Jesus said, I now am the light of the world. He is identifying himself with the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He is declaring his identity. I am God in the flesh. As the cloud was a symbol of God's presence, so am I God's presence. As the fire in the wilderness was a symbol of God's presence, so am I God's presence in your midst. Would you like to know the eternal God? Then you come to know Jesus Christ. Because he is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the true and the living God. And Jesus is saying it here at the opening of the chapter in somewhat veiled terms that perhaps they didn't grasp the full magnitude of at that time. But by the time he gets to the end of the chapter, he's taken the veil back and he just says, listen, folks, you want to know who I am? I am. <laughs> I am. I am not just bread. I am not just life. I am not just light. I am the I am. I am God. And so Jesus is making a statement of identity. Let's let that horse die. Second, he's making a statement of intentionality. Not only of identity, but of intentionality. Folks, I'm hot. Please forgive me. I don't sweat. I just, I just get hot. I used my band this morning, so I'm okay. A statement of intentionality. In other words, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, he is giving a statement of what he intends to do, now listen, of what he intends to do to, for, and through those who follow him. Now listen, in the wilderness, this pillar of cloud that was with them in the midst of the camp not only was the symbol of the very presence of God, but it was there for a specific purpose. It was there to guide them in their wanderings in the wilderness. You remember, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, that when the cloud would move during the day, the Israelites would say, God's moving, let's go. And when the fire would move at night, the Israelites would say, God's moving, let's go. And if they didn't follow the, the cloud, if they didn't follow the light, then what happened? They walked in darkness, didn't they? I mean, God goes on with the pillar of fire, and if you stay back here, you're going to be in darkness. And so in order to stay in the light, when the fire moved, God was saying, it's time to break camp, folks. Let's move on to the promised land. So it was there to guide them in the wilderness wanderings. And if they would follow the light, then they always walked in the light. 
Now, Jesus says this, and this is so significant in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, listen, if you follow me, you will never walk in darkness. What a wonderful promise for the people of God. What's he saying? Well, obviously, he's saying that you will not walk in sin. If you follow me, if you live in my light, then you will not walk in the darkness of sin. But he's saying something else that is so practical. If you follow me, you will always have guidance for your life. That's what the pillar of fire did for them in the wilderness wanderings. It guided them to the promised land. That's how they got there, was by following the cloud and by following the fire. God guided them. He led them by the fire. And so Jesus said, you want to have guidance for your life? Not only do you not want to walk in darkness of sin, but you want to have direction. You want to have meaning. You want to have purpose for your life. This is what I intend to do. I intend to give direction and guidance to my people. Now, let me ask you a question. How much do you walk in the light? How much do you experience the guidance of God in your life? Now, that's kind of a threatening question, isn't it? It kind of puts us on the spot. If Jesus said, if you follow me and you walk in my light because I am the light of the world, then you will not walk in darkness. He is stating that his desire is not only that we not walk in the darkness of sin, but that he guide us even as the Father guided the Israelites in the Old Testament wilderness wanderings. How do you make decisions for your life? Let's talk about it for a moment because it's real practical stuff. How do you make decisions for your life? Are you walking in the light? Are you walking in the guidance of, of the Lord Jesus? Are you walking in darkness? Well, let's, let's put it to test. How do you make decisions in your life? Do you make your decisions in your life based on what people tell you? Do you make decisions in your life based upon how you feel at the particular moment? Do you make decisions in your life based upon what circumstances tell you, how it appears to the human rational mind at the given moment? If you dare, you're walking in darkness. You're not walking in light. Because you see, what people tell you can often be wrong and often is. What your feelings tell you most of the time are going to be wrong. And what circumstances tell you can be stilted in such a way that you totally, completely miss the direction and the will of God. So, how do you make decisions in your life? Are you walking in the light or are you walking in darkness? Let me ask another question. And it's your question. Say, well, how do I walk in the light? <laughs> you think of that question? How do I walk in the light then? But you'd never ask. I've got an answer. Here. How does Jesus guide us, in other words? If Jesus came to be light, not only in the whole world, to enlighten the world to truth, but to guide and direct his people, which he certainly desires to do? If that is true, then how do we walk in that light? How do we receive the guidance and the direction of the Lord Jesus? A couple of things. He directs us through Scripture. Now, I know that you're not surprised by that, but I want you to rethink it with me for a moment. He directs us through Scripture. When we walk according to the Word of God, we are walking in light, right? 
We're not walking in darkness. We're walking in light. Listen to what the psalmist said. Psalm 119, one of my favorite psalms, verses 97 through 105. I don't know how much of it I'll read, but just jump on board here for a minute. The psalmist says, oh, how I love thy law, thy word. It is my meditation all of the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all of my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditations. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed thy precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil, that I may keep thy word. I have not, a, not turned aside from your ordinances, for thou thyself hast taught me. Listen. How sweet are thy words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. For thy precepts, from thy precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And then listen to what he says in verse 105. And most of you have probably got this memorized. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What is the psalmist saying? He is saying that as I have learned to meditate upon your word, Lord, as I have learned to walk in your word, your word has become for me like a lamp, like a light that goes before me and it sheds light before me. And because I follow your word, because I meditate upon your word, I walk in the light. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The Apostle Paul says it in somewhat different words, but it's the same thing. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. For what? For teaching? For correction? for reproof, for instruction in righteousness' sake. Now listen to that. The Word of God is inspired. It is profitable. So whatever comes into your life, the first thing you ought to do is measure it against the Word. Is anybody there? <laughs> Are you sure? Say amen, just so I know. If it violates the Word, it's darkness. That's just all there is to it. That's pretty easy, isn't it? We walk according to his word. We walk in the light, for his word is light. His word is like a lamp that guides our paths. Now, folks, scripture is so practical. And I know some of you don't know the scripture very well. You're sitting there going, oh, but that doesn't help me. I mean, you know, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, the last part of it, and the first part of it was written a couple thousand years before that. So, I mean, what's the Bible got to do with the decisions I got to make day by day? I'll tell you, folks, the Bible has an awful lot to say about the decisions you make on a day-to-day -day basis. You would be surprised if you really became a student of the Word and really meditated on the Word of God how much more, a lot of things in your life you never even have to pray about. That's the honest truth. We get all pious about it, we pray about it, and then we do what we want to do. If you just open the book, a great many of the decisions that you need to make on your daily basis instantly would be made for you because the Word of God is a lamp. It's a light. It guides. For instance, I've dealt this for years with, with folks. In changing your job or your business, perhaps there's something to this thing that just doesn't seem right. Perhaps it's uh, maybe there are a little bit of shady things that are going on behind the, the back. Maybe it's not totally illegal or anything like that. You're not sure but it's just a little bit shady, but it's a great opportunity. It's a tremendous promotion. It's a tremendous pay raise, and so we pray about it. Then we say, Lord, this is what I'm going to do. If you just meditate on the Word of God, the Word of God would tell you immediately that's not for you because God's people are not to be involved in anything that is not a truth. Anything that is not truth is a lie. 
You wouldn't even have to pray about that decision. If there's anything at all about it that is not ethical, if there's anything at all about it that is immoral, that it even smacks of anything unethical, your decision's made. You don't need to pray about that. You just need to meditate on the Word of God. That's pretty easy. Young people, one of these days you're going to get married, most of you, probably. You're going to face some decisions about who you're going to marry. You're maybe going to go off to college. Are you going to meet somebody in high school? And you're going to become in a dating relationship. And then one of these days, you're going to face a decision. Am I going to marry this person or not? And that person is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their life has not been committed to the Lord Jesus. Young ladies and men, you don't even have to pray about that. You don't even have to ask God about that. His words already told you that a believer is not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. There ain't no need, there's no reason to pray about it. There's no reason to even ask God. He's already spoken. Why ask him what he wants you to do? He's already told you what he wants you to do. Just walk in the light and don't walk in the darkness. There, I could go on all day long. There's so much practical truth and wisdom in the word of God. He guides us with his word. Thy word is like a lamp unto my path. But what about the in-between stuff? Say, okay i got to make this decision for my life. I can't find anything about it that violates the Scripture. I can't find anything in Scripture that specifically directs me about this decision. So how do I decide, Lord, how do I walk in the light in this situation? How do I make this decision? Not only does he guide us by his Scripture, he guides us by his Spirit. By his Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 16, When I leave you, I will send you another helper, and he will guide you into all truth. Now, this Holy Spirit that Jesus has sent to dwell within the very heart and life of the believer has a wonderful ministry. I, in these past days, am gaining so much joy and insight into the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life that I cannot tell you how it has revolutionized my walk with the Lord Jesus. Because for me, like so many of you, for so long the Holy Spirit was the unspoken member of the Trinity. And in fact, there was a day and time in Baptist churches when you didn't want to mention the Holy Spirit because they'd boot you out the back door. And that is honestly the truth, and many of you have been there. Even the time when I was saved in the latter 70s, in a Baptist church, you would never hear a preacher preach a sermon about the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, many of us were totally ignorant about the Spirit's ministry. Listen, Jesus sent the Spirit. There's nothing wrong with the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit. He said, I will send you another comforter. And the word he used there, another, is another of the same kind, just like me, Jesus said. You don't need to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. He is the gift of Jesus to his people. And he has given the Holy Spirit to his people to give us a wonderful ministry. Listen to a few things that the Holy Spirit does in our life. He is the earnest of our inheritance. He's the down payment. You buy a house, you give earnest money, don't you? What does that say? As say, well, you're giving that person the foretaste, a guarantee of the fact that you're going to buy the old shooting match. And if you don't, you're going to keep the earnest money, right? He's an earnest. He's a down payment. He's a foretaste of glory to come. God is giving him to us for that, giving, us to, give, yeah, giving him to us for that purpose. Not only that, but Paul says in Ephesians, he is the seal of our salvation. You know what the Holy Spirit does when he comes into the life of the believer? When you trust Jesus Christ, he puts a seal of ownership on your life. 
It is the law of the Medes and the Persians, and it can never be revoked. You are God's child forever, and it is the Holy Spirit that seals you in that salvation. He is our assurance. Not only that, he's our intercessor. Jesus intercedes before the Father. The Spirit, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 26, intercedes in the heart of the believer, for he knows the mind of God. So when I don't know how to pray because of my weakness, the Holy Spirit can pray. And he prays with groanings too deep words. I don't know what that means, but it just means that the Spirit prays for me. He has a wonderful ministry in my life. It's glorious. Not only that, but he is a guide. And he is given to guide us into all truth. If you develop spiritual ears and spiritual eyes to hear, and here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's where you got to fish or cut bait. I could go on there's a whole bunch of those. You know what I mean? You got <laughs> you got to get with it. You got to get on with the job. Just saying, well, I have the Holy Spirit doesn't do you a bit of good. If you don't develop spiritual eyes and spiritual <laughs> spiritual ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. And that is by fellowshipping with the Father. That is by spending time, much time in the place of prayer, spending much time in the Word of God, saying, Lord, I want to hear your voice. I want to learn what the shepherd's voice sounds like so that when you speak, I will hear your voice and I will know it's your voice and I'll know it's not my voice. I'll know it's not the voice of the world. I'll know that it is the voice of the Spirit bearing witness with my spirit about this decision. He guides us. One of the most dramatic stories in all of the New Testament about the guidance of the Spirit is in the life of the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 16. Paul is on the second missionary journey. He's got Silas with him. Paul is wanting to preach the gospel in Asia. And he's just come through the Galatian region. And he wants to go to Asia. And he wants to preach the gospel in Asia. But you know what Acts 16 says? It says the Holy Spirit would not allow him to. The Holy Spirit didn't let him preach the gospel in Asia. So he looks to Bithynia. He wants to go to Bithynia and preach the gospel in Bithynia. You know what the scripture says? It says the Holy Spirit forbade him from preaching the gospel in Bithynia. So Paul goes, to, goes on to Troas. He goes to that seaport town of Troas. Just across the way is Europe, is Macedonia. And that night in Troas, you know what the Spirit of God does? Gives him a vision. And a vision of the man of Macedonia saying, come over, come over and help us. And Paul immediately sets sail for Macedonia, preaches the gospel, and the gospel has a beachhead in Europe for the first time. Now, how did the Holy Spirit forbid Paul from preaching in Asia and then in Bithynia? I don't know. He doesn't say. He tells us that in Troas it was through a vision that he got that he should go to Macedonia, but he doesn't tell us how the Spirit kept him from preaching the gospel in those other places. I suspect, since it doesn't say specifically that it was a vision or a dream, that it was the Spirit bearing witness with his Spirit in the inner man. Now, God may not give you a vision. He may do it. God may not give you a dream to speak to you. He may do it, but I'll guarantee you this. He will always bear witness with your spirit about those decisions if you develop spiritual eyes and spiritual ears to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. He guides he is that beacon. He is the light of the world. And light sheds light in darkness. And when you're walking in light, you don't have to worry about what's there. You can see it. In the early 70s, mid-70s, I began taking flying lessons. I was single at that time. 
about a year after I got married, my wife made me quit flying, and I haven't really flown since probably 78, 79. By the way, I soloed after four and a half hours, Leon. Either I was awful good or my instructor was awful stupid. But I didn't know any better, and I think he did. He just hoping I'd crash and burn. He'd be through with me, I guess. But he gave me a definition. The first ass I, I got in the plane to begin my first flying lesson. He said, let me tell you something about flying. This is the best definition of flying I've ever heard. He said, flying is hours and hours of boredom accented by a few seconds of sheer terror. <laughs> and anybody who has ever flown a light plane knows that that definition is true. I experienced it several times. Hours and hours of boredom accented by a few seconds of sheer terror when something totally unexpected takes place. Stories told of a pilot flying a light plane over the Sahara Desert. It was in the late afternoon dusk. The sun had just gone down, that time that is the most dangerous, the most difficult to see when you're flying. He was flying, as it were, by the seat of his pants, no instruments, just flying by sight, looking for that little airport that had that beacon that was going to guide him to that place to land in the desert. He saw a bleaking light in the distance, and he began to fly toward that light, only to discover that it was an early star that was rising in the early evening and from a distance looked like a beacon. And then he saw another blinking light way off in the distance and he began to fly toward that. Only to discover that it also was another one of the early evening stars rising. It was not the beacon. And there he was, panicked, flying from place to place, looking for that beacon that was going to guide him home. And later he wrote these words about that experience. There I was, hopelessly lost in the vastness of the night, going from one light to another, desperately searching for the one light that would lead me home. Jesus is that one light. Jesus is the light of the world. He wants to guide his people. How does he guide us? He guides us through his word. We just need to get into it. Like the psalmist, I need to eat the word. It needs to become like sweet honey in my mouth. I need to meditate. I need to let it be my meditation all the day long. And much of my life will be guided day by day. My decisions are already made for me through his word. But those times that it is not, that I must make those subjective kinds of decisions, he has given his spirit within to guide me. If I will but develop spiritual heart, spiritual mind, spiritual ears to hear his voice. So Jesus speaks about his identity. Jesus speaks about his intentionality. Goodness, this is, this is too important to let pass up. He speaks about his permanence. Remember verse 20? It says Jesus is in the court of the women, in the treasury. Many scholars believe that when Jesus spoke these words, it was at the end of the feast. And at the end of the feast, they would always put the light out of the candelabras. They would extinguish those lights. And many scholars believe that Jesus was standing there in the treasury as the feast was ended and they extinguished those candelabras and the light was shining no more in Jerusalem. And Jesus in that environment says, I am the light of the world. You see, that light was temporary. That light of the candelabra was temporary. That light in the Old Testament wilderness wanderings even was temporary. But in contrast to Jesus said to that, Jesus says, I am the light of the world and he who walks after me, will never walk in darkness. The implication is this. This light is eternal. This light is not going out. In John chapter 1, verse 5, 
John talks about the light that came in the world. And he says, and the world did not comprehend it. Speaking of the light of Jesus. The word that is translated comprehend is really, I think, a misfortunate translation. Because in the original language, the word there is a Greek word. It's a compound Greek word, kata lambano, which means to seize or to overtake. It's not that the world did not comprehend this light. John is saying this light came in the world and the world couldn't snuff it out. The world couldn't seize it. The world could not overpower this light. This light, which is Jesus, is an eternal and is a permanent light. So Jesus is making a statement about his person. He's making a statement about his purpose. He's making a statement about his permanence. Now, in the closing moments that I've already used, let me draw this all together and make the application. This week, as I literally meditated upon this passage, something came to me, the ramifications of which are awesome if we grasp them. There's a passage in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, where this same human author, the Apostle John, where he makes this statement, speaking of Jesus and of us, the church, he says, as he is in the world, now listen, as he is in the world, so also are we. Now what is John saying? As Jesus is, so are we. Now that's an incredible statement. As Jesus is in the world, we, the body of Christ, we, the church, are also. John is saying that we, the church, are everything in the world that Jesus is in the world because we, in fact, are the body of Christ. Since his ascension, since his physical resurrection, now he lives and he dwells and he manifests himself in and through the church as he is in the world, so also are we. Now, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But do you know that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he looked at those believers and he said, you are the light of the world? Now, who is the light of the world? Are there two lights of the world? Is Jesus the light of the world? And then over here, are we a light of the world? That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says he is the light of the world, but as he shines through his people, we become the light of the world. As he is, so also are we in the world. Jesus is the light, and now that light dwells within us, the church. Now listen, this is the point. Everything that Jesus was and is, you and I are. Everything. Everything. Jesus was crucified, was he not? The scripture says, and from the very mouth of Jesus himself, unless let every man who desires to follow me deny himself and take up his cross. Not only was Jesus crucified, we are crucified in Christ Jesus. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. As he is, so also are we in the world. Jesus was crucified, I am to be crucified. Was Jesus resurrected? You bet he was. Are we resurrected in Christ? You bet we are. The New Testament over and over and over again says that he has raised us to new life. Did Jesus ascend to the Father? You bet he did. Do you know what Paul says about us? He says that he has seated us with him in heavenly places. 
As Jesus was crucified, I have been crucified. As Jesus was raised, I have been raised. As Jesus ascended, I have ascended into the very heavenly places of the Father. As Jesus died on the cross, I must die. As he was raised, I must be raised. Listen. As Jesus performed acts of mercy and compassion in the world, he has said, blessed are the merciful. Everything that Jesus has done, I am to do. For as he is, so am I in the world. That's what the scripture says. As Jesus went about proclaiming the kingdom of God, what am I to do? The Great Commission says that I am to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Just as he is in the world, so are we. Did Jesus do acts of power? Yes, he did. I believe that he desires today to do acts of power through his people, the body of Christ Jesus. As he is, so also are we in the world. His statement that I am the light of the world said something about his person, said something about his purpose, said something about his permanence. Now, here it is, and I'll do this very quickly. That statement he made of himself is the same statement he made of us. He is the light of the world. We are the light of the world. And that statement says something about our person. That statement says something about our purpose. That statement says something about our permanence. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He's saying, I am God present. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, as you go into the world, you are the physical manifestation of me. Paul, uh, Peter says it in 2 Peter 1. We have been betake, become partakers of the very divine nature. Folks, I'm not preaching heresy. I'm preaching truth. We have become partakers of the divine nature. If Jesus was God in the flesh, we also are Jesus in the flesh. The body of Christ. As this light, we go as his body. Now think about that. Think of the ramification of that. Think of what you do to your body. Think of where you take your body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are literally the physical manifestation of Jesus in this world. The fact that we are the light of the world says that we are the same as Jesus was. He was the physical manifestation of God. Now, the fullness of that has not yet been realized. But John says that someday when he comes, we will look at him and we will be as he is, for we will see him as he is. I look forward to that day, don't you? But not only does it say something about our person, listen, it says something about our purpose. Jesus, by saying, I'm the light of the world, said, I came to shed light. Jesus, by saying, you are the light of the world, what is he doing? He's telling us our purpose. What is our purpose? To be light in darkness. To be light in darkness. How much light do you shed in the darkness of your environment? At work? At home? Are you fulfilling your purpose? You see, everything we do. Everything we are is, should, is to revol revolve around that purpose. If we are the light of the world, then we are to shed light in dark places in the world. But it says something about our permanence as well. As that light of that candelabra was snuffed out at the end of the feast, and Jesus said, but listen, I am the light of the world, permanent, never to be snuffed out. Then he looks at these disciples and he says, you are the light of the world. He's saying something about our permanence as well. In Matthew 16, he said it this way. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Does that sound permanent to you? 
Does that sound indestructible to you? Does that sound invincible to you? As Jesus walked in the world, all of the demon powers of, of, of heaven and of earth bowed before him as those disciples went out. They came back and they said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus said, go therefore and be my light in the world. And it says that as you storm the gates of hell, they will not prevail. Folks, think about that. <laughs> I don't understand. Hell for 20 years, I missed it. I do understand. I regret it. But I'm thankful that the Lord is teaching me. Listen, we are the light of the world. Because Jesus lives in us and he is the light. There are not two lights. There is one light. And while he was here, he manifested that light. But when he ascended, he said, now you are the light. It says something about our person, about our purpose, but also about our permanent. It's, it's time that the church rose up and became the church. Rather than cowering in our clustered meetings, it's time that the church began to take the gates of hell by force, storming the gates of hell. Let's pray.